But it is a, uh, it's a beautiful morning. It's, it's been said a few times already, but it's worth saying again. Uh, what a gorgeous, gorgeous day. The weather didn't always look like it was going to be uh, great. It certainly didn't look like it was going to be like this. So it's exciting uh, to be out here in God's creation. And I feel like often the Stephen Field Sunday comes together for us. It seems like it's, it's quite often it's in the middle of maybe not great weather, but this Sunday tends to be a beautiful, beautiful day. And uh, today is no exception. Um... Before I get into this, though, I want to open up in prayer. So bow with me. God, thank you for creation. Thank you for your control over the weather. We believe that this is a special gift you've given us today. This day, this beautiful weather. Thank you for the way in which you have commissioned us as your church, God. That apart from a building, apart from a location, apart from a specific time and a specific place, God, we are your church, and we can be that anywhere. Thank you for the reminder that this is um, of our calling that is that is separate from just Pleasant Valley as a place. I pray that as I speak, God, that you would speak through me, that uh, our hearts and our minds would be changed, that we would be drawn closer to you and closer to each other as we listen. Amen. I do, if all of a sudden papers go flying off, I do have it on my phone, so it's no crisis. Thank you. Okay, good morning. I said that already, but it's written here, so I have to... (laughs) There's a 150-year-old short story that I'm going to get into this morning with you. A little bit. Bit of a weird way to start a sermon, maybe. But it's called uh, The Great Stone Face, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Has anybody ever read the short story, The Great Stone Face? I see one hand. Maybe that's it. Uh, The Great Stone Face. I read it back in university as a part of an American literature uh, course. I might have read it in high school too, but it isn't a very well-known story. And so I will give you, I'll start off by giving you a bit of a synopsis uh, of this story. The story is about a boy uh, whose name is Ernest. And Ernest lives in a valley. And Ernest is a good name for this boy uh, because he is Ernest. Uh, He wants to do good. He cares about what's right. He's a good-hearted person. And in the valley where he lives, there is a great stone face. That is, it's a natural collection of rocks that if you view it at the right angle, uh, from the right distance, it seems to form a face. And Ernest becomes a little bit obsessed with this face. He studies it for many hours at a time. He spends time with it, and he begins to see a strong character in this face. He begins to see a man of love and compassion and gentleness and wisdom and justice uh, in this face. Uh, And in the valley, there's an old, I think it's a, a native legend or a prophecy that someday a man is going to arise who has exactly the same features. Thanks, Bash who has exactly the same features uh, of this face, who's going to look just like it and who's going to bring peace and prosperity to the land. And Ernest lives his life believing and hoping that this man is going to show up, that someday a person with these same features that he has grown to love is going to arrive. And rumors start to build in the community about a rich man who lives far away. His name is Mr. Gathergold, who is supposed to look just like this stone face. And sure enough, Mr. Gathergold comes down to the valley and the townspeople begin to cheer because he looks exactly like this face. But Ernest is looking and he doesn't see it. The kindness and the generosity that he knows in that face, they're missing. 
and so he's disappointed. And eventually, years later, Mr. Gathergold has lost his wealth and the people move on. Besides, a, a new man is coming. Uh, General Blood and Thunder is his name. He's a great war hero. And uh, he shows up and the people cheer again because he bears a perfect resemblance to this face. He's powerful and he's strong and he seems to be in control. And he has a sense of justice. But Ernest looks at this man and he can't find the peace and the gentleness that he knows is in the stone face. And so he's disappointed again. And when the general is old and weak, then others have moved on. And later there's a politician that comes by and the politician actually changes his name to Old Stony Fizz. It's a 150-year-old story. The names are a bit wacky. But this old stony fizz, he changes his name in order to sort of associate himself with this face already before he's even seen these people. And the townspeople see him come and again, they're elated because the prophecy has surely been fulfilled. Here is this man who looks just like this face, but Ernest looks and he doesn't see the humility and he doesn't see the care for others. It's not quite right. Finally, a poet comes, one who Ernest has read for years and he loves, someone who speaks of and understands profound truth and beauty. And upon his arrival, Ernest believes that this might finally be the man. There's so much similarity. But the poet admits that although his words are divine, his life is anything but. He can speak of beauty, but he hasn't lived it. And he is not a worthy holder of the title. And Ernest sees with disappointment that this is true. Ernest, by this time in the story, he's an old man. He's actually a preacher. And he's grown in his wisdom and he's known for his gentleness and his goodness and he's well loved and respected in his community. And so in the evening, despite his disappointment, he walks with the poet and they go up to the mountainside near this face to give an evening sermon. And as Ernest begins to speak, some of you might already see where this is going, but this is how it reads. Ernest began to speak, giving to the people of what was in his heart and mind and his words had power because they accorded with his thoughts and his thoughts had reality and depth because they harmonized with the life that he had always lived. It was not mere breath that this preacher uttered. They were words of life because a life of good deeds and holy love was melted into them. And as he's speaking, as he's giving this sermon, the poet who is listening and the townspeople suddenly realize here at last, behold, behold, Ernest himself is the likeness of this great stone face. The prophecy is fulfilled. So there, now you're halfway to a university degree in American literature. So why do I begin with this story? Well, because it's basically my sermon today, and it hits on exactly the things that I want to talk about. And if you're not totally sure what I mean by that or what I'm getting at, hopefully by the end it's going to come together for you in the same way that it came together for me. So... The first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about creation. This was sort of the initial seed of the message. I knew that today we were going to be sitting here at Stephen Field, that we would be surrounded by trees that would be on this grassy hill, that we'd have the water behind us. And I, I can't help but think in these situations about who God is and his identity as a creator God. Because God is not just a God who happens to create, it's described as one of his key or core attributes. Our first introduction to God in scripture is that of the creator God, of the inventor God, of a God who builds and imagines and brings forth good things. It's interesting, before we are told that God is loving or gracious or just or righteous or holy, which he is, but before that we are told he's an artist, he's a creator, 
And in the first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we witness this absolutely overwhelming and staggering invention or innovation or creation. And, and this thinking about God in terms of Him being a creator doesn't stop after Genesis. The Bible speaks over and over again about creation, and especially about how creation is in many ways God's calling card. It's, it has power to draw us uh, towards Him. One of the clearest pieces of Scripture that we see on this is in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 20, that says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says that if we open our eyes to see, if we take a moment to look around us, to listen and to experience the created earth, if we go outside at night and we look up at the stars, if we sit here and we take a moment to breathe, to really appreciate what is around us, that every blade of grass here is unique, that no wave on the shore is ever going to break quite the same as any other wave that's broken before. And even if we think about the way that things are balanced here, the cycle of nature, the different plants and animals that are working together, that are supporting each other, this life and death cycle that has been created, these things, Paul says, draw us towards God. They make the invisible visible. So I want to encourage you, this is just a small encouragement, that sometime today, while you are here after the service, when you're walking around, if you take a path or if you're somewhere, just take a moment, even just a minute or two, and really try to be mindful of what you're surrounded by. Recognize the sort of the majesty and the wonder and even the simplest things, even the, even the leaves on the trees or the grains of grass in the beach, even these simple, simple things. To me, and, and, and Paul says here, point us towards God. Show us who God is. Job also says uh, that, uh, he says this, he says, Ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you, or speak it to the earth, and it will tell you, or let the fish in the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his life, in his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. So our buddy Ernest in the story he was drawn towards God through creation as well, right? This great stony face, this natural rock wall captured his spirit and his heart. And as he studied and as he meditated on it, it showed him who God was. He saw the character of God in that wall and he became obsessed by it. He was drawn towards something bigger than himself. It totally occupied him. It became something that filled his thoughts, that guided his life, that pursuit of relationship or understanding of this great stone face and its character. So that's creation's job, or one of creation's jobs at least, is to be a signpost pointing towards God, is to make the invisible qualities of God visible. But there's another question. What is our purpose in life? What are we called to? Because we, humankind, are also a part of creation. But it's clear that we're set apart from it. Genesis makes it very clear that we're on a different level. That unlike the rest of creation, we are made in the image of God. That we are God-breathed. We have a special purpose and a special distinction among created things. So what is our purpose? What is our reason for existence? That's the most important question 
that we can ask. All, all major philosophers and poets and thinkers are seeking an answer to this question. Every major religion is trying to figure out the answer to this. Nothing could matter more than understanding it. The townspeople, in the story that I read, they knew about God. Creation had actually done its job well here. They had looked at that face and they had said, yes, this is God. And they understood it. And they, and they understood how large the nose was. And they knew where the eyes were. And they knew the, the, the slant of the eyebrows and the wave of the hair. And they could probably draw that face from memory. They paid attention. Every freckle and every tooth were in their memory. But they didn't actually enter into relationship with the thing. It was something to observe. It was something to study. It was a curiosity or an interest. It was a spectacle. And so when someone came along that bore a resemblance, that had some of the characteristics that they would want to see in God, that they had noticed in this face, that they admired about it, and that person was convenient or interesting or comfortable or seemed like maybe it could benefit them or they could benefit them in some way, they said, at last, here is the great stony face in the flesh. And there is a real danger in us following that same path with God. We can know all the Bible stories and we can have the lists memorized of what God is supposed to be like or about how we're supposed to behave. But if all we have is information or head knowledge, then our view of God is totally incomplete. And we see it in those townspeople. Whether it's Mr. Gathergold, who's rich and successful, or General Blood and Thunder, who has power and control, or this old stony fizz who is charismatic and wise, or even the poet who speaks eloquently and truthfully. These townspeople knew all about God. Maybe they even admired God, and they saw some true things about Him at some level. They knew that God was rich and that He had everything. They knew that He was powerful and just. They knew that He spoke truth and beauty. They knew these things. And so then they grabbed that whatever fell into their box, whatever suited them best about God. They picked people who fit into their specific idea of what God is supposed to represent. Nature, you know, creation pointed them towards God, and they said, yes, there is a God. But that's sort of where they left it. Ernest, though, was different. Because Ernest didn't just know about God. He didn't just memorize the position of the rocks and then move on. He spent time with God. He grew in relationship. And simply through that process, through spending time in the presence of this great stony face, because he cared to really understand it, because he loved it, he was changed. He was transformed in the way that he thought about others. It transformed the way that he lived and the way that he acted. The more that he studied and talked and spent time with this stone face, the more that he began to look and act like it. I want to reference uh, Darren's challenge verses again. At the beginning of the summer, Darren gave us a challenge to memorize a passage uh, from uh, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to read some of those verses here. I'm going to start at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body 
you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So if I am the sort of person who knows about God, I might have this list memorized. I might understand that I should be compassionate and I should be kind and I should be humble and gentle and patient and that I need to forgive and I need to love and I need to be peaceful and I need to be thankful and I need to admonish with wisdom and I need to sing songs from the Spirit. But man, that list is a little overwhelming, isn't it? If I'm lucky, I can maybe do one or two of those things at a time. It can almost make a person not want to bother trying. It's like one of those one-man bands you see walking around at the fair sometimes, playing the drums and the accordion and the harmonica and the guitar and juggling all at once, and I think I can barely walk and chew gum at the same time. How do I have a chance to live up to what God has called me to? But anyone who is working on memorizing the scripture that Darren gave us may have noticed that I left out the first verse, which begins by saying, here there is not Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all and is in all. Our focus needs to be on Jesus. The beginning of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 3, puts it in some ways even more clearly. It says, Since you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The list is overwhelming, but we don't need to worry about the list. We set our minds and our hearts on Christ Jesus, who is all and is in all. And as we do that, then what happens is that we actually begin to look more and more like Him. That those lists stop being a source of stress about what we are or aren't living up to and start becoming a natural description of the outpouring, the result of looking more and more like Jesus. Just like Ernest spent time with this face and found himself transformed, I pray more and more that in our lives people will look at us and they will look at our lives and like it says in the story, our words will have power because they accord with our thoughts and our thoughts will have reality and depth because they harmonize with our lives and it will not be mere breath but words of life because a life of good deeds and holy love was melted into them. And maybe the people will look at us and say, Behold, behold, this man, this woman, they look just like Jesus. That's my prayer for us as a community as a body of Christ, and also us as individuals, as we seek to know Jesus more, that that would be our focus and our goal, and that the people around us would see that working inside of us as we keep on looking in small bits, stumbling along the way, more and more like Jesus. And as we close, I want to talk a little bit about baptism. Because in a few moments, Darren's going to come up and lead us into the next part of our service, where we stop talking about the idea of transformation, and we journey and celebrate along with someone with Brandon, who will shortly be taking an active and literal step in that direction. Several literal steps as we head down to the water. Because baptism is about the ultimate expression of this desire that we as Christians have. This desire to move past knowing about God and to really know God. 
It is the living symbol of that first part of Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Our lives are not our own. They are hidden in Christ. We begin to disappear as we clothe ourselves, as we fill ourselves, as we shape ourselves into Christ Jesus. And if we are earnest in that pursuit, Paul continues that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen.